Welcome to episode 177 of Control the Controllables. And as we die down from the US Open, the, the Labour Cup, we thought, who can we get on? Uh, but somebody who stood shoulder to shoulder with all of the players at the US Open as the player liaison manager of the USTA, Eric Buterak. You know, my wife, who played college tennis, often says, you know, you got to maybe fix his forehand or what do you think about the backhand so flat, you know, and I'm like, no, he just needs to love the sport. Like, that's all he needs at this age. He's eight. I think at least in the world that I live in the greater New York City area, there's this real pressure to like learn and achieve and, and parents are taking too many lessons when it's like, if you can just plant that joy, that passion, that love in the kid later on down the road, they can get really, really good. And Eric's had a had a life of tennis, as you're going to hear in his story from Division Three College in America. I mean, if you go to Division Three College, surely that means you're giving up. But no, he went there and he ended up being a Grand Slam finalist. He ended up being number 17 in the world on the ATP in doubles. He was 50% of the famous partnership, Stretch and Booty. And Stretch, as many of you Brits will know, is Jamie Murray, the brother of Andy Murray. That was his nickname. And Eric Buterak was Booty, who was the who was the second part of that, or the 50, who was the other 50% of that partnership. They had fantastic career together. Eric then went on, played with many different players, spent eight years on the ATP board, moved as he went into a different part of tennis. You're going to find out he's played many different roles. He's been tournament director at the Masters Series event in Cincinnati and plays a big role alongside the players and helping them. And, you know, player liaison manager, you, you have to have the respect. You know, it's not easy to be looking after all of these males females, their demands, their teams, the superstars. And we talk through it all. You know, we hear what it was like taking Serena Williams and everything that went into creating the show that was the last dance for Serena at this this year's US Open. I love this conversation. He speaks clearly. He's got such great philosophies, many that I completely believe in myself. I'm sure you're going to take lots from this. So sit back, relax, enjoy. And here is Eric Buterak. So Eric Buterak, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And it's a pleasure. It really is a pleasure to have you on. And to, to those listening, this is this is Booty, who people will know in Britain for sure as as Jamie Murray. I think it was Stretch and Booty. Was that the that that was the combo that Jamie Murray, Eric Buterak link all of those years ago? And I, I'm excited. I just said there off air. You know, I've I've used your the basics of your story to lots of players over the years as, as an inspiration of, you know, what can be achieved in this sport. And I, I'm excited to hear a bit more of it, you know, from your rise as a junior 
to Division Three college player, to then top ten player in the world, top twenty player in the world, to then to then somebody who has is working in such a high level at the USDA now, tournament director of a Masters One Thousand event. So there's lots to get into, Eric. But I think I think the starting point, the whole tennis world, we've just about dried our eyes after the tears at Lever Cup that, that Roger Federer and also Rafael Nadal put us through. Mm-hmm. So I have to start there. Give us give us your thoughts on Roger Federer. Um, Roger is a special guy. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to be uh, one of the many, as you saw all the photos popping up, right, as he retired, who, who got to know him um, most closely because I got to work on the Player Council for, for eight years. Uh, Federer was president uh, for six of those. I was vice president underneath him for a couple of those years. Um, so got to know him really well. And again, really, really lucky and, and honored to, to, you know, get to know such a, such a legend. Um, uh, people always ask me, you know, you know, what's he like? Is he, as, is he as nice and kind of a person, you know, as he appears to be, um, you know, the truth is he's, he's probably better. He's, he's, you've probably heard players say it. He's someone who comes into the locker room and there's sort of an aura around him, right? It's almost like a glow. Um, there's a few people that have this. I think Serena had it for me. Andre Agassi also had it. People that almost appear like a caricature of themselves, um, but treated everyone, you know, equally and treated it, you know, greeted everyone, uh, was kind to everyone. The thing I I say that I recognize most about him and, and try to use this in my own life is that when he speaks to you, you feel like you're the only person in the room. And for a guy who has that sort of kind of power and that many things going on in his life, for all the conversations we've had, and and my wife's gotten to know him, and my mother's met him, and you know he never looks at his phone. He never looks like he never acts like he has somewhere to be. And it's an incredibly sort of powerful quality that he has. Um, and I try to use that in my own life. Right, there's times where I feel like uh, maybe at the U.S. Open and I'm rushing to get somewhere or rushing through a conversation or even kind of multitasking, and I really want to stop myself. And I'm like, if if a guy, you know, this big and this big a stature can can treat people that way. Um, I can surely do the same. And um, that's sort of one thing that I always thought was was really, really special. And I think it almost comes from a place, um, a good friend, Justin Gimmelstab said this, that that he's aware of how big he is. And he's aware that like when you get to spend time with him, it's, it's going to be sort of like a life moment for you. Um, and it's true in the case of my mom or my wife or, or many other people who've gotten to meet him. And he really embraces that and treats the moment to be as important as it is. And so maybe, maybe it may be a different sort of antidote anecdote than you would have expected, but um, just a really special quality of, of, of what a great human he is. When you have that quality, it ends up being what everyone feels about you, you know? So, so we did a, we did a Roger Federer retirement tribute kind of special last week. And I spoke to about six or seven ex players, current players, journalists, uh, even we had a super fan on there and we shared stories and I have a couple of personal stories from Roger when I was a junior and also when I was a co- uh, being a coach at Grand Slams. And I think pretty much everyone who's met him said the same. And, yeah. and, and that's, uh, that, that's the, and that's a very small sample size we're talking about, you know, but the, the sample size came out at pretty much a hundred percent of people that had met him had that same feeling. So I think that came through loud and clear and, the other legend who 
I don't know if you can give us any insight, you know, player relations officer, uh, director of player relations at the USDA, US Open, when Serena, did she announce her retirement? Didn't she announce her retirement? <laughs> it kind of feels we were unable to, we gave it, there was some send-off, but it was unable to fully give that send-off because we're not quite sure if it is a send-off. Yeah, that was certainly an exciting summer for us, right? And it started even with the the Western and Southern Open. You know, we were we were I think two weeks out from the the tournament there, and you know I was driving to work in, in Cincinnati, and all of a sudden I get there and my phone's just blowing up, and you know the Vogue article had released, and um, her team had let us know at the same moment that she was planning to come yeah. and play the Western Southern Open. So of course ticket sales, you know, went through the roof, and that was that was great, but it's also there's a lot of stress and planning that that goes around that to make sure that you treat the moment right. Um, I think we saw in Cincinnati, you know, she played Emma and didn't look that good on court. I think yeah. everyone was quite worried going to the U.S. Open that she was going to lose first round. Um, and of course, from the USTA side, you know, we had everything planned to go that night and ultimately decided that we were going to treat that moment, that first night as the opening night would really be the time to recognize her. And I remember when that decision was made, I kind of thought, oh, I don't know, really, we don't want to save it till she, you know, maybe she she loses or plays her final match. But you never quite know how that final match is going to yeah. go and everything was prepared and everyone was in the building that night. And it turned out to be really special. Um, yeah. I was in, I got to see the whole ceremony. Um, it was a very powerful night to, to be in the building. And then I think how it went was that was actually really great. Right. She, she then, you know, beat the number two player in the world. Um, of course, then expectations go through the roof, right? We all we all went from thinking she could lose her first round to then everyone thinking she's going to win the tournament, you know, within a span of 48 <laughs> that, hours. That's tennis. That's tennis for you, isn't it? That's what we do. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, but then even when she lost, you know, she, she went down fighting, right? I sat courtside for that final game and watching her save all these match points. And um, it was just sort of, you know, that's that's what she is, right? And She's a she's a fighter, and you know the, her story. I mean, it's been told so many times, and with the movie coming out last year, um, you know she fought to get there, and she fought to you know the final final point, and that was that was really special. Um, seeing some people would maybe like to see her go on, you know, deeper in the event, but I also think that the way it played out allowed the U.S. Open to sort of be the official, yeah, yeah. you know, changing of the guard event. And then with Roger retiring right after the event, it really was. And then with the guy who everyone has sort of earmarked as the next, you know, guy to take over the throne, winning his first slam and going to number one. So um, I think we drew, at least in America, and I haven't seen the worldwide numbers yet, but the eyeballs, it was the most, you know, watched match ever on ESPN. It was, the, you know, the ratings were higher than ever. But then what it did is once once she lost on Friday, then people started watching Coco Goff. People were talking about Nick Kyrgios. Then people were talking about Francis Tiafo. And people were talking about Iga. And then Car ultimately Carlos. And so now I have you know casual sports fan friends who are naming those five names and following them, whereas before all they knew was you know Roger, Rafa, and Serena. So I think tennis tennis was the big winner, um, and it was I felt so lucky just to be a part of the event where you know that sort of that that moment happened. No, oh, absolutely, and and it was actually Serena to blame for my for my tired, heavy eyes for that first week uh, of the Open because obviously here in Europe, you know, the the it was late and and I couldn't take my eyes off it. You know, I had to I had to watch it. You know, and that the final match, every one of her matches was fantastic. And there's two things because I I, I want to talk about Eric Buderak. I don't want to talk just about Roger Federer and Serena Williams. 
in the position that you're in, incredibly challenging because you're 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 looking after high end tennis players with big expectations and mm-hmm. you know all of these bits, and then you have the potentially the greatest of them all, you know, certainly on the female side in Serena having that on at home in the USA, potentially going out, but she's playing against another player. And there's, you know, and, and, and there's two people going on. And I know that when I saw Annette Kontovitz, I saw her, her press conference, you know, the tears flowed, you know, it was, it was, it, it was a very difficult situation. And even though I'm sure she will look back very fondly at that, at that moment and that part of time and that part of history, to be sat on the court, to be, to be have, seeing the videos and the adulation and all of these bits, and then having to get up and then compete in a tennis match. Mm-hmm. How how were you able to manage that? You know, I would imagine there's probably a little bit of fallout, fallout's maybe the wrong word, but there's conversations you're having to have around those those bits as well. So how were you able to manage that whole that whole piece and not just obviously Serena's not the only priority that you you had. Yeah, it's a it's a big challenge and and something you know we take very seriously, um, and it happens at, at all levels, right? We 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 have we have top players, you know. Right now, the maybe the the big four, if you would call Serena, you know, Roger, Rafa, Novak, and the amount of titles they've won, and sort of managing those four when they come to every U.S. Open, right? That's sort of the, they're they're an operation in themselves. Um, but even when it comes down to things like you know making sure there's a level of fairness we 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 go you know to the end of the the earth to make sure that who's ever playing those players gets opportunities to practice on on Arthur Ashe but you know but before they get out there to to make sure that we realize that there are two players on that court right and that they they do get treated with with the best possible US Open experience um that they can have and that's the responsibility of our team and it's challenging because you know they everyone's got comes with sort of different um, excitement levels or baggage or size of team. Um, and, um, yeah, we just need to, to kind of work it all into a, ultimately into a tennis tournament. And my last one on Serena, why has she left it as such a mystery? Why it's, you know, it's it, it, in some ways I, I kind of, I like it. It is this, mm-hmm. is she, is she, isn't she, you know, but in, in your heart of hearts, will we see Serena Williams again at another professional tennis tournament? Oh, I have no idea. You know, I don't know. I don't know what where, where she's at as far as her interest in, you know, kind of do putting in the, the work that it takes. I think, I guess from sitting on the outside and not having had one conversation with her about it, I, I would bet that she surprised herself at the level that mm-hmm. she was able to play, especially from, from watching her in Cincinnati only two weeks earlier where she did not look great. She was not playing good tennis. I think her body wasn't in, in a great place. And then t- only, you know, two weeks later was able to come out and put on the level, you know, play the level that she played. She probably started thinking, wow, you know, m- you know, I can still do this. I think the hard part will be, and Dan, you played and I played and is then to go home and do you want to put in those hours of training that it really takes to be, you know, a, a competitive player again? I think it's one thing to kind of really ramp up and do it for a few weeks. It's yeah. another thing to sort of play and do it for a calendar year. And all, all players struggle with that, right? It's easy to get up for the slams. But after the U.S. Open finishes, you know, all the players go home, they train for a week or two, and then they get on a plane to Asia. And they go play in, you know, Kuala Lumpur or Bangkok or Seoul or Tokyo on the other side of the world. And, and there's sort of a lull, right? And you have to, you know 
to really be a pro tennis player, at least like guys like you and me, you know, you need to earn points those weeks. You need to, you need to work hard. And and those are the the kind of the, the differentiators. So will we see her again? I don't know. Tough to say. Um, but certainly watching her at the open was pretty special. So if she wants to bring, you know, more of that excitement back to tennis, I think we'd all be happy to watch it. We'll take it. We'll take a Federer, yeah. Federer, Serena, mixed doubles, Wimbledon, twenty twenty three. You know, we'll 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 take it, and they're all a lot of them are starting to come to their end, the end, and it is it's an exciting time, like you say. But I want to I want to move into you, you know, your story and uh, uh, the starting point. You know, it goes goes young as you want, goes early as you want. You know how how you started, where you, where you were brought up, you know, how you got into tennis and, and where, where that real passion, that seed was, you know, one thing, whenever I've seen you as you're, you're a passionate guy, you know, tennis is in your blood, you know, it's mm -hmm. got into your blood. So how did it and when did it? Yeah. Good question. There's definitely a couple of key influential people along the way. Um, started with my parents. My parents actually own a small tennis club in Rochester, Minnesota, and so I grew up, you know, with with my dad, who was the head pro, and it was a, a six court indoor facility and then a, a 15 court outdoor public park. And so, you know, my summers were spent uh, every day going with my dad to the tennis club, um, hitting balls in different groups, playing ping pong, eating lunch. Um, and that was sort of, um, you know, my summer camp, if you will. Um I was a good junior player from sort of standards in Minnesota. I had a kind of a, a moment where I was maybe about 12 years old and realized, you know, I was having tears after every match. Uh, told my dad I didn't want to play anymore. I want to quit tennis. I don't like this. Um, you know, kids are cheating. There's pressure. I want no part of it. And and he, you know, really calmly said, you know, no problem. You know, what 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 is it you want to do? You want to play other sports? You want to do other things? You want to be a normal kid? You know, you don't have to chase and play these tournaments and no problem. Um, ultimately, a couple of years later, when I was about 14, 15, I decided, you know what, I, I really want to get back into this. Um, and I'd been hitting balls, you know, for those couple of years, I just hadn't really been playing tournaments. So when I was about 15, I, I came back to the game and started playing tournaments around Minnesota, started taking it a little more seriously. And, um, you know, became one of the best players in, in the state again. Um, but that was sort of when I went from you know, having that hunger that I think, or not the hunger, having the love that my dad sort of kind of instilled in me and watched how much the game meant to him. But then when I sort of walked away from it and came back as a teenager, you know, now it was sort of, I was doing it for me. You know, I, I took a little bit of ownership of it. Um, even when I became 16, I sort of drive myself to tournaments. Uh, I would meet up with friends, but it was my thing, right? And And that was really important. And so that was where I started to get a little bit of a sort of launching pad. Um, wasn't really good enough to get recognized by any of the major schools. Um, I walked onto a small D1 school called Ball State University. Um, I was in and out of their lineup, you know, and um, after a year and a half, decided to transfer to a D3 school. And that was where I met sort of the, you know, the next big influence, which was a guy named Steve Wilkinson. Um, he was, the, I think he's the winningest coach in, in all of college history. And he actually coached my father as well and sort of kind of like yeah. instilled sort of the passion in my dad. So I had a relationship with him starting right away. And he he sort of changed, you know, everything, how I framed the the game. I, I walked in as the number two player. I thought, um, you know, I just want to get to number one on the team. Um, and he sort of said, look, you know, your, your, your goals here are, are, are not to be number one on the team. Your goal is to become the best tennis player you can be. And, and we started focusing on that. 
he lives by a thing and you'll probably appreciate this with the title of your podcast. Um, he lived by the serenity prayer, you know, focusing on the things you can control. And he would just beat us over the head with this. You know, when we would complain about someone cheating us, when we would complain about the wind, when we would complain about anything, he would always just bring it back to that Uh same mantra. And it was great. And it was a really powerful message. Um, So two and a half years with him, you know, he, he just changed everything, how I, how I thought about the game, how I approached it, how I tried to get better every day. Um, stopped looking at sort of outside metrics and really looking at myself uh, on how to get better. He, um, in addition to the focus on you can on what you can control message, he had the the three crowns that he would always sort of rate us rate us on, and that was you know giving full effort, having a positive attitude, and then having good sportsmanship. And again, all three things that you can control. We would talk about him after every match. Um, he would rate us on, on scales sometimes on how we were doing. And so that was that was sort of a, a fundamental or a really great building block for me to go out on the tour. Um, I didn't really realize it at the time. You know, I think it was a, I won the D3 Nationals. I kind of wanted to keep playing tennis, I, but D3 players never really turned pro. So it was this sort of weird crossroads of do I go be a high school teacher like was my original plan or do I, you know, take a shot at this thing? And And he was he was super encouraging and ultimately led me to kind of, I think, where I started bumping into you, which was moving over to Europe uh, with a couple of friends who, who who dragged me over there to play money tournaments in France, um, ultimately led to some futures and 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 kind of that's where the, the whole pro journey began. But if you ask kind of where the fire came from or where the love, um, you know, combination of both my mom and my dad, and then uh, Steve Wilkinson, who really kind of, you know, kind of set me up for success. When I speak to good storytellers, good speakers, it's great because uh, it, it, you can have, I have a very loose script, you know, loose loose structure to, to these conversations. But when it's so genuinely interesting, my mind goes, I'd love to know more about that. And I'd love to know more about that. And then it's like, it's, it's picking, it's picking which one, you know, which, which, which rabbit hole do we jump into? Now, the first one that I, I have to, because as I said earlier, this is 178 episodes. So when you speak to 178 people in our sport, you learn lots, you know, and you, uh, you confirm some of your thoughts, you get challenged on some, you, um, you you pick up new new pieces of information, and one thing that's confirmed that I've had confirmed to me is how many good people there are in our sport. You know, and I think mm-hmm. sometimes the cynicism around that. So that's 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 one thing. But one thing that's absolutely jumped out of mind, and I always ask the question, "How did you get into the sport?" Mm-hmm. And I'm almost waiting for them to tell me which tennis club that their parents worked at, <laughs> and I'm almost waiting for or, or to hear which tennis club was across the road from where they lived mm-hmm. in it. In in what it brings up, I think there's a bigger question because it feels as if there's, there's a fraternity in our sport that continues and you come, you know, you have kids and then they become part of that fraternity and it, it kind of goes on. But the, I guess the challenge is how do we get others into you know into the sport that are on the outside of of the of the tennis fraternity already because again smallish sample size but 178 people some journalists 
some people out of the sport. I need to go through it one day, but I can almost guarantee it's 80% plus that have started through already having family members that are strongly attached to the sport or are a coach. I, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. If that's, you know, obviously we're looking at tennis now as a whole, but, but I guess the question is how are we opening up the, the sport to others? You've touched on it a little bit when you talked about the U S open and, mm -hmm. you know, your casual friends talking now a little bit more about mm -hmm. some different names. Um, and I would imagine that's at the forefront of a lot of conversations with the likes of the USTA and, and sure. people that are heavily involved in tennis. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, with the USDA, the, our mission is to to grow the sport. And that's a whole, you know, different path we could talk about. But if we just sort of, you know, even focus on just the personal, you know, I think a lot of people get it wrong. And and maybe this is, is parents who aren't getting great guidance, that at the youngest age, it's just getting your kids to fall in love with the sport. Like, and yeah, I have an eight-year-old who's super talented. He plays baseball and hockey. And, and this morning, you know, 6.30 a.m., he's dragging me out of bed. And we played a full set of tennis in the driveway in our little mini court, you know. And and he hits the ball well. And but his Did you win? Are... <laughs> he, he won today 6-4, <laughs> actually. <laughs> it was more because I knew we had to get to breakfast for, for all the kids. And it was 4-all. And I was like, I'm better off dumping these two games so I can get the sausage and hash browns cooking. Um, but... You know, my wife who played college tennis it often says, you know, you, you got to maybe fix his forehand or what do you think about it? the backhand so flat, you know, and I'm like, no, he just needs to love the sport. Like, that's all he needs at this age. He's eight. Like, we can fix the forehand and the backhand when I send him to your academy in Spain when he's 16. Yeah. You know, that's that's not an issue right now. And, you know, the other day, I, or last night, actually, I brought my two boys, I have a six-year-old as well, who's pretty into tennis. And we went to the, went to the nearby middle school courts. And there was a, a dad there with two kids exactly the same age. And he came over and he said, hey, would your older son want to hit with my son? And I said, sure. I said, but why don't we play three on three? And he's like, oh, I thought maybe we would do like a, you know, a set because he plays at this, you know, club and he has these lessons and blah, blah. I said, yeah, but let's just have some fun. You know, let's play family against family, three on yeah. three. And we just, you know, fed balls in and we had orange dot balls and red dot balls and foam balls. And it was sort of chaos, but it was super, super fun. Yeah. And so I think at least in the world that I live in the greater New York City area, there's this real pressure to like, you know, learn and achieve and and parents are taking too many lessons when it's like if you can just plant that joy that passion that love in the kid later on down the road they can get really really good um so that's what i try to do i try to do it with my own family you know my dad did it for me everyone said oh you're so lucky you had a dad who's a tennis coach i'm like he didn't look at one grip he didn't teach me one lesson we used to go out and hit balls but he was, we were just, we were playing games to 10 or we were rallying. We, you know, there was, there was no coaching going on. Um, so I think that's, that that's the message I try to tell. Um, and I think a lot of people who have made it, if you call them, you know, me as one of the guys who have made it, we know that we know that it's not about, you know, whereas the people who, who haven't get caught up too much in trying to achieve at a really young age and actually can take kind of the kids the, the wrong direction. I absolutely love the message. And I'm with the message and it would be definitely one of my big messages as well. But the, the challenge to that message, somebody sat at home or so in the car right now going, Carlos Alcaraz, you know, are they, they're, they're saying, you know, these players that they come along and I always think they're, they're bad role models in lots of ways because 
the generational talents that that come along and it's not the journey to follow because it's too difficult to follow that journey let's assume you're not carlos alcaraz i tell people that all the time you know uh, yeah. let's, just, let's let's assume yeah. you're not talented like roger federer let's you know and, but anyway, and, continue. Yeah, and, and so that's that's the because that's the the thought. And I obviously I've got an international tennis academy where we have people coming from all around the world. And the demand, the demand for ten year olds to have this program and individualized program and stretching, divide stretching, and then you know it must be this fitness coach that does that movement. And it, it's. <laughs> It's a, it is a challenge and it's it's my mm-hmm. biggest headache if I'm honest because because fundamentally I know that if they're going to be any good they'll be they'll be good let's create the environment for them to develop and so you're now in my position you know you you're you're running a, a tennis academy um a, a, in a competitive part of the world you know Spain there's hundreds of tennis academies you know Juan and Jose down the road are, are giving the the strong message that you need to be you need to be training 10, 15, 20 hours and you need individual lessons. What's your message to to that parent? Although not that parent, because it's not one. It's it's a significant number. Yeah. Um, it is it is challenging. Um, I would try to message, at least at that age, that you don't need the hours of training, but you do need the hours of sport. Um, so so again, if I were in your place and maybe you'd do this, but um I spent a lot of time training in Nice, France. There was an academy, which is now taken over by Mortagalu. But before that, it was a place called ISP, run by a guy, yeah. Charles, yeah. Charles Offrey. And we used to, I used to train with their kids all the time. And we played so much soccer. We did boxing in the sand. We played basketball. We went swimming. We went to the ocean. And, you know, there was a lot of, of multi-sport um, approach, which I thought just made all of us better athletes, yeah. me being, you know, a pro at the time, but with, I was hanging out with, you know, 15 year olds. Um, and I thought that was really, really valuable. And I've heard Novak say that as well. And, you know, it's, it's less about being in the gym. He goes, he goes kayaking, he goes hiking, you know, he does a lot of things like that, that I think make you a really great athlete. So if you can steer parents there instead of, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, basket feeding, you know, for 15 hours a week, it's about, you know, becoming this phenomenal athlete. Um, the story that I want to point to, and I need to learn more about the story is this young American kid, Ben Shelton, um, who is just broken through. He won the NCAAs. He won a few rounds in Cincy. He beat Casper rude, uh, and then had a wild card at the open. His dad is the coach at Florida. Uh, and I need to get the exact details, but I believe Ben was like a baseball pitcher until he was like 15 and was, you know, not even really recruited by many schools. He'd end up playing for his dad, you know, multi-sport athlete well into his teens, then got to college and really started kind of, you know, taking off and, but shows that sort of the multi-sport approach, you know, they were not focused on rankings. They were not focused on, you know, junior, junior points and, and climbing the ladder at all. They were purely focused on athletic development and then, you know, when he was 17, 18, 19, 20, those were the years that he really, really got into it. And now, you know, look at what he's doing, you know, on the pro tour. So I feel like if we can focus yeah. on a lot of stories like that, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a helpful model to, to show parents. Well, it is. And it's important that we have 
we have those things in the forefront as well because mm-hmm. because the Alcarazes, the Serena Williams, the Roger Federer's, the Rafael Nadal's, the Igor Sviontek's, they're 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 on our screens. That's who we see. So mm-hmm. so so then as parents, it's easy to delve into their stories. You know, so what were they doing at age ten? You know, sure. what were they, you know, but what was, you know, there's many of them, but Dominic Kopfer, I, I, I've had him on the podcast. You know, he yeah. was playing, he was playing twice a week until he was 16. You I, know, coached, like, I was the volunteer assistant coach at Harvard when Kopfer came in and played and he was like 40 in the country, you know what I mean? In college tennis. Yeah. I, mean, I was out there helping coach our Harvard kid against him. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I see he was, he's an incredible example. Yeah. These are the ones we need to shine a light on, but the, the other topics, I don't want to miss the, the, the other couple of things that jumped in my mind, but it's along that line. So you talked about and control the controllables, as you can guess from the name is my mantra and it's the Academy's mantra. And it's, you know, something that has helped me personally over the years, you know, and I, I want that to continue helping as, as many individuals as it can. And there's lots of layers to that, but you at age 20, we're ready to take those messages and that can be sometimes we do a at the end of the, every week at the academy we do a a friday we call our friday circle and the circle represents team soto that's who we are you know the unity of the team and and then we we talk about the values things that have happened during the week we have play of the week based on values you know you know and it's a, it's it's always a it's a nice moment but the guilt I have sometimes is, am I on my soapbox, you know, giving these messages that I've learned now as a 42 year old mm-hmm. and is it too early for some of the players to take them on board? So to link that into your personal story, if you were given by Steve, Steve Wilkinson, I think you mm-hmm. said, if Steve had given you those messages when you were 13, 14, were, was your mind ready to take them on? And is it worth those messages being given at such a young age? Does it seep in and eventually come out? Yeah, because I think absolutely, because one, I think I was probably getting them from my father. My father played for yeah. Steve. So yes, I think, you know, there, there was stuff like I was the best player in uh, one of the best players in the state. So when I played my high school tennis matches as a as a 16, 17 year old, I was beating most of the kids, you know, six, one, six, one, six, oh, six, one, six, oh, six, one, six, two. And I remember my dad saying after like the third match one year, like, Hey, after every match, I would like you to, you know, shake your opponent's hand, compliment them on one thing that he did well. And then after the match, after a few minutes, actually go over and have a conversation and just kind of get to know him a little bit and whatever. And it was like, you know, I did that and it became a bit of a routine. And, um, you know, then I got to Gustavus a couple of, you know, four years later and Steve said, by the way, we just have a rule here that you got to compliment. I said, Oh God, <laughs> you know? So here, my dad had taken one of Steve's things and had driven yeah. home to me. And so now, you know, I'm already doing it with my son, right? He's eight. And it's like, you know, he's, he's, he loves the sport. He pitches, he's a hockey player. And, you know, we never talk about winning and losing on the drives home, you know, I, I climbed their day on the ice. They were doing a one-on-one drill and the kid stole the puck from him and scored. And they went back into the line and, and he kind of fist bumped the kid. I could hear him say, you know, nice, nice, nice play. And on the way home, I talked about how, like how important that was and how great, how proud of him I was for that moment. And so just trying to highlight those messages at a young age, as opposed to, you know, first question being how many goals did you score or, or did your team win, yeah. which is which is a natural thing for all of us to do because sport is competition. And I, I get that. 
but you have to really, you know, I think go out of your way as a parent to, to drive these messages home. But I know that if I can get those messages into my son at eight, he's, he could be receptive to you at 13. He yeah. could be receptive to a Steve when he gets to college. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really working hard because the world doesn't always set you up for, for those types of messages to be received as much as say the winning and losing. So Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we've, we've got to go out of our way to, to deliver it. Great advice. And, and that's that little moment there, I think, for parents that are listening, you know, because it's not an easy gig. And it's certainly not an easy gig when you're coming into a sport you don't know. You're you're naturally comparing your your son or daughter to, to little Jimmy or, you know, little Emma, you know, that's doing this and winning the tournaments and what are they doing? And, you know, that parent is speaking that way quite strongly. So maybe I need to speak like that. Maybe that's going to make the difference. So, mm -hmm. so I think, and that's for me, what these podcasts are about, you know, it's about those messages, take those messages from people that have, that have been there, but back to your, your story, anyone that those us college, Div one, Division one, U.S. College is like it's the holy grail. Mm -hmm. I want to. I'll go to U.S. College. I mean, in my day, it was actually in Europe. It was you failed if you've gone to U.S. College. Mm -hmm. You know, then it became, well, if you go to Div one, it's okay. You know, if you go to Div one, it's okay. So, I imagine Cam Norrie's changed that just a touch, <laughs> huh? Cam Norrie's definitely, <laughs> definitely played a role. But I mean, but there was so many of them over the years. Even in my yeah. time, I mean, James Blake had just was just coming out. You know, the, you had you had all sorts of players. Obviously, Kevin Anderson. We, we could go through them, but going taking the step from Div One to Div Three, it's a two prodded question. How was that for you to go? Well, actually, do you know what? It's not working out here. I'm gonna no better way of saying it. Maybe relegate myself down the divisions and explain to people out there that that have this preconceived idea that Division One's the only place to be how you what is the difference between the divisions why because people automatically go well division one's obviously really good division two is not as good and division three is really not nowhere mm -hmm. near as good so mm -hmm. can you give us a little bit of context to that as well so yeah i can i can share sort of even a story about i mean i was i was of the same mindset right people thought i would choose to go to gustavus right away because my dad had played there and i had this relationship with steve um and i was like no i want i want d1 you know that's that's where it's at and um, I got there and had this sort of, you know, moment of realization that it's it's also a, a combination of, of tennis as an individual sport. And then you you join a team in college and you are cheering for your teammates and you want to win together. But you're also sort of fighting for a lineup spot against your teammates. It's a very odd, odd thing. And it's something that's not talked about a little bit. I think I struggled with that. And I struggled fighting for a lineup spot. And I realized that I thought I wanted to be around better players. I thought I wanted to be in that, you know, it was going to push me to be a better player, but I realized that sort of the stress of, am I going to play? Am I not going to play? Is the coach watching this baseline game? I need to beat this guy, you know, almost to the point too, where I was, you know, hoping some of my teammates would lose on any given day because I wanted to make sure I would be in the lineup, you know, the following week. And that wasn't, it wasn't a great place to be. Um, so for me, then, you know, kind of going to D3, going to a place where I was, you know, the top player on the team, or at least one of the top players, um, was really comforting. Uh, I got more attention from the coach, you know, the, I, I could, I could totally relax and practice. And if I, if I lost the baseline games, like I, I, you know, it was no big deal. I was still going to play, you know, one or two on the weekend. 
I could work on things and, and, you know, I'm going to serve and volley both first and second serve this whole set and not worry that I might lose to the number six guy. Cause I'm really like working on my craft for someone who was self-motivated like myself. It was actually a much better fit. You know, I didn't need the rah, rah. I didn't need to be, you know, sort of challenged by guys, you know, nipping at my heels. I had that sort of inner desire. So for, for me, it was, it was the right, the right spot, but ultimately too, it, it, it comes down to like, you know, this gets back, it gets back into the junior question of like, you know, why do we play sport? You know, we play sport because it's fun. You know, we, we get to learn a lot about ourselves. We get to compete, but ultimately it's really, really fun. And I think for me, uh, you know, the, the D1 practices were long. They were stressful. I wasn't enjoying it that much. Then I went to Gustavus where, you know, practices were much shorter and I found myself arriving early and staying later and practicing the same amount of time anyways, yeah. because just because it was a more enjoyable experience for me there. Um, and that was nothing against the program where I went at Ball State. It was an incredible program. It was a great coach. It just wasn't the right fit for me. And I say that, you know, that that same kind of idea can relate to an academy. If you're choosing it for your kid, it can relate to other sports, you know, and ultimately we, we, we play sport because it's it's joyful and it's fun. And you and I have both met many pro tennis players whose parents have, you know, driven, you know, the whole operation and maybe the player is ranked 50 in the world and making a half million dollars a year, but they're not enjoying it at all. They're not happy to be there. So is that really winning? Is that really the goal? Yeah, I, I personally don't think it is. You know, with, with my kids, I want them to love sport. I don't care what sport it is. And I, if they don't want to do sport and they want to be in art or some other entertainment or another industry, that's great too. But like, if if you don't love it, I don't think you're going to be that great. And if you somehow get great without loving it, is that really a win or a success? Like, I'm not really so sure it is. Um, so for me, the to wrap it up back to the D3 thing, it was it was such a happy place that I couldn't wait to go to practice every day. I couldn't wait to be there. I couldn't wait to go for a morning hit with my coach. I couldn't wait to go to the gym. My best friends were on the team. It was such a joyous experience um, that that's why I think I, I developed so well as well. Brilliant. My um, I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but my favorite, maybe it's my favorite, one of my favorite podcasts I've done, episodes I've done, was uh, Valerie Condos Field. I don't know if you've come across Valerie, but Valerie was the she was the UCLA gymnastics coach for many many years, and uh, she just retired about two years ago. And she's done a TED talk listened by millions, which is winning doesn't always equal success, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's that it's that exact concept, and and what she did because she wasn't a gymnastics coach, she was actually a dancer, and she came into this position, and she said, "Well, I saw, I felt I had to do what the other gymnastic coaches were doing, you know, to kind of show my worth of being." And I think we can do that as parents. So she mirrored behaviors, and and then she had some complaints about bullying, and you know, she was and she was going to do it through grit, determination. And she just took a step back and went, right, actually, this is this is not me. This is not how I want it to be. You know, and if it means we don't win the NCAAs, we don't win the NCAAs, you know, but I want to have a happy team. I want to find, you know, this way. And she completely, and fair play to us, completely changed the way she coached, the way she was around the girls. And and actually, the, the, the byproduct was that they did go on and win more, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the little icing on the cake. But, but what she had now is she had happy young people who, 
you know, we're going into into the real world, you know, with that that feeling, that passion, that 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 positive experience. And if you do get a chance to to listen to that one, I, it's it's well worth listening to, uh, for for the listeners and also the TED talk that she does as well, because it's it's that concept and it's it's I think more and more that conversation's coming out. You know that mm-hmm. that would have been shot down twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. No, be tough, be tougher on them. Yeah, you know, they need more out. And 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 I think more and more we're realizing that human beings are a bit more complex than that. And, you know, we first and foremost need to need to take care of that. There's I've just seen the time and I want to talk about so many more things. So <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm gonna try and keep it a little bit shorter. Maybe we do a part two, Eric. But I okay. I, I need to ask you. In your pro career, you went and played, you know, we know you in the UK because you you had such a great partnership with Jamie Murray. I, I You had some amazing success, finalist at, at Australian Open, you know, went and, and did things that many people can only imagine. But I have to ask you about the time that you spent with Louis Kaye because mm-hmm. Louis Kaye, and we talked about this off air, I don't know if there's ever been a coach almost in any sport that's transcended such such a, a change in in results on the court ultimately you know as as he has with, with British tennis or in doubles in general you know you look at his record it's uh, it's crazy I think it's like 20 world number ones and a crazy amount of grand slams so what was uh, I do believe you did some work with him when you were working with Jamie what what made Louis so special and him as a coach so special um, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on, on yeah. Louis. I, I think he's, I think he's that special. Um, again, probably after, like I said, I mentioned my, my parents, I mentioned Steve and then Louis probably the next, you know, most influential person on my career. And I didn't even get to spend that many much time with him. Um, yeah, at, at, at the year we played in 07, um, I think Jamie and I were both ranked around a hundred in the world. Um and Jamie had been hired by I believe by Judy to work just with Jamie. Yes, I was sort yes. of just an, a, a hanger on, you know, tagging along for the ride, and was just sitting there with my my notebook <laughs> trying to soak up as much information as, as possible. Um and and he took us from you know a hundred to maybe you know twenty in the world reasonably quickly, and and a, a time a sort of a a ranking jump that many people really really struggle with. Um. You know, he 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 makes the game, at least for for me, a bit mathematical. There's a lot of sort of formations, a lot of geometry to it, which which is really helpful to kind of understand the court. And so it it takes some time with him. Um, but also once you sort of learn his system, there's there's a lot of freedom in that as well. Um, and we could talk all about sort of the X's and O's and what he's done. The the thing he did for me was that through his system. I then had the ability to believe that I could beat these great teams. Yeah. I, I struggled all along believing that I was as good as my ranking even said I was. Yeah. You know, I look at the ranks and be like, I'm not a 50. Look at these guys behind me. They're so much better than I am. You know, yeah. I, a lot of people have this like self-belief that they think they're number one in the world when they're nowhere close. I, I was quite the opposite. But I think through through his um sorry, his game plan, his strategy, the tactics that he that he helped us with. It helped me believe. I mean, I, Jamie and I, I think in our first Wimbledon, you know, we were this in the second round. We played Ehrlich and Ram, who were number five in the world at the time. And 
you know, I was like, oh my God, these guys, I've seen them on TV. They're, you know, outside of the Brian brothers and the most popular guys on tour. Like, there's no way. And Louis like, no, no, I, you know, I used to coach these guys. Like, you're going to serve here. You're going to run this play. You're going to do this. And when they start, they're going to, they're going to want to do this to you. So you're going to counter that with this. And he's like, I, I, I think, I think you'll be fine. Like, I, 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 I would expect you guys to win this match. And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, um, you know, I was playing challengers, you know, three months ago. And so that was what he and he instilled that belief without it being like a bunch of fluff. You know, that yeah. I've had coaches before who say, no, you, you just got to believe you just got to believe. And and he said, no, you 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 can you can believe because if you do this, this and this, you are going to win. And that that for me was really the sort of the differentiating factor. Um, so, again, I, I, I'm, I'm sure what he did for me in that year um is similar to what he's done for you know so many british players right and i i, I lived through sort of the the the, the skupski brothers and and jamie and, and fleming and hutchins and delgado and and now there's sort of like a whole another generation coming through right with 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 salisbury and glasspool and it's just like if, if you give louis a, a semi-talented you know ex-college tennis player he the guy could get him in the top 50 in no time like it's, it's literally unbelievable yeah. Um, because I'd see him do it again and again and again. And, and that, you know, he's still taking guys to number one in the world. I know, you know, the LTA constantly puts new sort of goals on him around how many, you know, players he needs to have in the world tour finals. And he seems <laughs> to do it like year after year. And takes um, great pleasure. Great, he does. Great pleasure he does. Into it. But, he, but he, I will say the one thing too, and finally I'll wrap it up and then get back to you, but he's, he he also doesn't stop learning, and I really respect that about him. Uh, we had some great we have great conversations. We had coffee in Turin last year and spent hours chatting. We had we chatted at the U.S. Open. He's constantly studying the game to be one step ahead of everyone else. And I think this is happening, say, in the NBA, where it's like, oh, it's all about three pointers, and Steph Curry changed the game, and then everyone sort of copies that model, right? Yep. But but Louis always one step ahead you know yeah. when, when other people are copying his tactics he's then going you know to the next level um and he puts in the effort he's got the brain for it and and it's it's just incredible what he's done uh, no I, I, i'll share a quick story as well he, even on the terminologies that he uses so probably back when you played he, he, he would talk on the return of serve all about the feeling of catching the ball and turning and and one day the the doubles guys Dominglot you know these guys were they were playing I think Davis Cup and they turned to Louis and they said oh my God when you serve against Andy Andy Murray it's like he's waiting for our serve it's like it just feels like he's waiting so if you speak to Louis now it's wait and turn you know he, he he's got no issue going well actually you know, that I think will 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 help more you know that. That's going to make a difference, you know. Takes the data, is informed by the data, and and moves forward. And yeah, he he's, he's a very very special special coach, and uh, it's lovely to hear just you know your your stories. Um, but my 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 last thing uh, before we do our quick fire round, and again, this is a podcast in itself because uh, tennis tennis is a vehicle for life is one of my big big philosophies, and it's something that I. I strongly believe in, you know, you, you put yourself in this, you have the joy, you have the fun, you go on a journey 
it, it, the success will come, you know, and it doesn't always mean that you win Wimbledon or you don't do this, but you live your, your life in the right way and, and do it with passion. Tennis will take you to some amazing places. And and since you've come out of playing, it's taken you into some amazing places and, you know, the skills that you've picked up. So give us, give us a, I guess, a little quick fire since you stopped playing what you what you've done and and how maybe tennis has helped you to then get yourself into into these into these roles and and be able to to do them uh with such confidence and such assurance um oh man that's a quick fire is going to be hard um but we can try to list a few things i mean i think one you mentioned it early um tennis has so many great people in it and i got to know all so many of them and that can be people who work on the on the you know the the running of the events it's the players it's the tours um being a part of the player council i just i really got the opportunity to meet so many different types of players kind of understand their issues had great conversations learned about the world you know through the eyes of these players um so that was really special and something that i think has given me real great perspective for helping work on the open or on cincinnati that it wasn't about me being a player and Eric taking what what he knew from a player's mindset and applying it in tournament. It's the fact that I had to know 300 players at, yep. you know, when I was on the player council and to really truly represent them. And that's that's what's helped me. Um, I think I think the 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 winning and the losing and sort of kind of coping with that, being able to kind of wake up every day and get a little little bit better um, is an unbelievably valuable skill. Um, I love working the open because stuff happens in the moment. And there's a lot of people I think that are very good when they have time to analyze and plan and, and, you know, spend months sort of on a project. But when something happens at the open, there's a, there's a, there's a fire brewing. You got to make decisions fast. And I love that. And and you got to trust your gut. You got to assess the situation real quickly and then make a decision and move. Um, so that's, that's, that's been really, really helpful for me that, yeah, that, that and it, it, even this year more in Cincinnati more than ever. Where I think at the Open, I you know I always have a boss, right? I can go to the tournament director, I can go to the CEO. Uh, in Cincinnati was the first time where there was a couple of times where you know, there's rain delays and the, the the tours want to do this and TV wants that and the players want this and you know we got to figure out how the schedule goes. But if we do that, we might have to refund tickets. And if we do this, but we don't know what the weather is going to be like. And then we sort of have a conversation, and then they all look at me, and it's just like. Oh crap! I, I'm <laughs> I'm the one who's got to decide, you know. And you sort of sit for a second and yeah. be like, "No, no, I've got this, right? This is, you know, I have to assess the landscape uh, and make a decision." Um, the same when you're playing a break point, right, in a big match. It's it's you 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 take all the information in, you make a decision, and you sort of pull the trigger and and go with it. Um, so those are some of the the things, but you know, ultimately, why am I in this role? It it goes back to what you said originally. It's about the people. Um, I love the sport. I love all the people that I've gotten to meet. It takes you all around the world. Um, this U.S. Open for me was maybe more meaningful because you mentioned, you know, Federer and Serena and they stole the headlines of retiring. But I had a lot of like really close friends retire at the U.S. Open this year. Yeah. And, you know, there was um, Nick Monroe. There was Andrea Petkovic. There was Sam Query, uh, Christina McHale. And then probably one of my closest friends in the world, Bruno Suarez. And so it was really about um, 
spending time to acknowledge those careers as well. We threw kind of surprise garden parties for the majority of them. We had big framed photos that we presented. Um, and it was sort of, it was a, it was personal for me because I've spent so much time with each of them. Um, and I, I knew what it meant when I retired at the open and someone threw sort of a, a surprise party for me. Um, so our team really, really takes those moments very seriously. Um, and we really try to make quite a big deal, you know, cause again, I think Serena did steal all the headlines of retirement, but those are, those are important careers. Um, and we wanted to recognize them and again, all sort of all very, very close to me. Very nice. Very good. And, and in terms of, I guess, the position that you're in now, your lens is different, you know, and, and that's like tennis players in general are selfish. You know, we have to almost have to be, have to be, yeah, no, it's, it's not a diss. It's certainly not a diss. And sometimes you actually want players to be more selfish. You know, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, certain players I've definitely given that advice. You know, you're talking to too many people, you yeah, there's too much going on in your world to be a bit more selfish and focused on your career. So if there was one thing, if there was players listening, now that you have the lens on the other side, if there's one thing that you wish they could know and respect that maybe they're not fully aware of, what would that be? I would try to explain to them, and I do this when the time is right, you know, just how much power they have and signing that extra autograph, engaging with the fans, chatting with them after practice is so, so powerful. Like you're truly changing lives. Um, Cam Norrie beat Carlos in an epic three-setter in um, in Cincinnati. And, you know, I went into the locker room. I always just sort of check on that, the players and, you know, the final match of the day before we sort of all kind of head, head different directions. And often, you know, they were both sitting quite close together and just kind of went to the two of them together and just sort of said, you know, thank you both for, you know, the show you put on tonight. Like, you know, there was the, the looks on people's faces, the excitement, you know, they're going to yeah. go home and they're going to play tennis. Um, you know, when Carlos said, at midnight, 1 a.m. Is, is walking out to the, his car and he just signs every single autograph and takes all those photos. Like every little moment that you take, like you you are truly changing lives. So, you know, do as much as you can. At some point, you have to be selfish. You have to go home. But, but don't be afraid to spend that extra 10 minutes after practice, that extra 15 minutes after a match. Um, Medvedev did it one night in Cincinnati where he went around the full court and signed every single autograph of every fan who waited. And when I see that, I really try to remind them, like, that was really special. Like, yeah. I, I get to see that from now a tournament director's perspective. Um, and that's what can truly change the game. Very good. And what's next for you? Oh, who knows? Um, you know, again, I've had I've had six years now working on the U.S. Open, uh, two years working on Cincinnati. Um, I don't know what will happen with Cincinnati because we have a new owner. The USDA no longer owns it. Um, but I do also have real interest in getting closer to to players on the court. You know, I I I feel a little, starting to feel a little bit disconnected. So if there's a way uh, in whatever my role, however it takes me um to to get a little bit closer to the court to get closer to the players um i appreciate you having me on because i love to share my story to share my message um and i love the business side of the sport but i also feel like i can make connections with people i can inspire them um i think some of the stuff that we've talked about today um making sure that that's being shared with the next generation i think i have value there 
and I want to make sure that I kind of continue to scratch that itch and and make sure that I can you know rest easy at night that I know that I've kind of done what I can uh, for the sport. Well, I've loved the chat so much. I I would have you on every week, you know, um, <laughs> and, and and I have no doubt that we could find a, a, a topic each week, you know, that that will make a difference. So, I do have some a few quick fire questions, but I just want to say a massive thank you, you know, on behalf of myself, but you know, control the controllables is now listened to in about 140 countries. So it, there's a, there's a lot of people that are, that are listening to this. There's a lot of people that are, that are taking these messages on board. And, and I know they appreciate as I do, you've given up your, your time to, to give back to the sport and, and, and I'll be listening back with a notepad and I'll be taking the messages down as well, because they've been, they've been absolutely brilliant. So thank you. No, it's been an honor. And um, I appreciate that people still want to hear my stories because um, it's, it's yeah, it uh, certainly is really nice to be able to share them. So our first question, control the controllables, quick fire round. What does control the controllables mean to you? Um, when I heard it, I related it back to the serenity prayer, which was burned into my brain from my, from my first coach. Forehand or backhand? Uh, forehand. Serve or return? Serve. I'm left-handed. That's what's put me, what gave me a career. One thing that someone would change, Neville Godwin, I asked that question, get ready for that. He said, left-handers should start every game serving from the ad side. <laughs> it's a fair, it's a fair, fair point. Um, to be able to save every break point with a slice serve out wide. Granted, I don't know if it's quite as valuable now that courts are slower than they were, you know, maybe many years ago in the, say the Mac Connors era. But um, yeah, we, we are different. And we, when you use it to your advantage, it's valuable. I'm sure you won't bring it up, but any righties out there, let's get, let's get the conversation going. <laughs> college tennis or pro tennis? I had more fun in college. Roger or Rafa? Gosh, they're both special. Um, gosh, get to choose one. I always cheered for Roger, but gosh, I've admired Rafa a lot more lately. So you haven't chosen one yet. <laughs> yeah, I'll choose Roger. <laughs> Your toughest ever opponent. I lost a lot to the Bryan brothers, um, but for me, the one that made me feel most uncomfortable was Daniel Nestor. Why? Left-handed, quirky, never knew what was coming. He had that Louis Kai background, so he always put the ball where it needed to be. Um, even warming up the match with him, I couldn't get any rhythm. <laughs> Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Uh, never played any of them. Um, Davis Cup is, is struggling. I think ATP Cup is maybe a little more of the future, but gosh, Labor Cup sure was great as well. Net codes or not? I am fine playing lets. Uh, we don't have them in college. We don't have them in world team tennis. And I was part of a, a player council that talked about the trial. Um, I think the net machines call it just fine. And it's only a couple times a set. Just keep it as it is. Medical timeout or not? I think they are being used for the wrong reasons. Um, so maybe you can see the, uh, you can see a doctor at the end of the set. Um, if you need an emergency, I think you should have to sort of like default like the rest of the game to, to, to see someone, but there should be different parameters put on them. 
and one rule change you would have in tennis? One rule change. Um, I do think that Fast 4, the format that Australian Open was behind, has some legs to it because I think we can um, play more points that are of interest. Like we get to the business end of the set quicker. I'm not ready to say that all of tennis should change to that, but I do think that four game sets, uh, there's there's merit to this discussion. Five sets or three at Grand Slams for males. We've got to stay with five, although it can get long. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? You Before you answer it, you have the baton to help bring them on. So it has to be within within your parameters of what you can what you're yeah. able to pull. I yeah? said I said this, I mentioned his name earlier, that one of you know, people always ask, you know, who would be three people that you like to have dinner with, right? And they say Roger Federer, Barack Obama, and and whoever, right? I would say that Bruno Suarez is one of my three favorite people to have dinner with. We can talk tennis. We can debate. There's depth of the conversation. There's laughter. Um, you can cover so many topics with him, and you can learn. You can you can laugh, and uh, I think you would very much enjoy the conversation if you haven't had him yet. We haven't. That would be a great guest. So I'll yeah. I'll be in touch with you, Eric, on that. And I'm confident that I can deliver that one as well. <laughs> well, that's the that's the <laughs> this is the bit. Well, I do. I do. Yeah. I don't. I don't have the open up on that one. So I'll, I'll be in touch. You've been a star. Thank you so much for coming on. Dan, thank you for having me. It was a real honor. And once again, another great recommendation for our next one of our next podcasts. And the list continues to grow. You know, sometimes the guests do say names. Marty Fish said Sergio Garcia. Not quite being able to push that one over the line. But they do go on a list and we do try hard. So Bruno Suarez sounds like he'll be an amazing guest. Just recently retired from the sport of tennis after winning multiple Grand Slams. So we'll certainly be reaching out to Eric to get that one set up. And Vicky, as you were editing this one... I can always tell when you're enjoying it. And this was a was another real standout episode. Yeah, I said to you, didn't I, as I was listening, I'm really enjoying this one. I, I don't know if it's the, the parent in me that it's tapping into. I do think this is a great episode for parents, of not just young tennis players, but young athletes, I think. Um, you know, we've got children a similar age and a lot of what he was saying are things that I believe him but he articulated it in a much better way than I could I mean he's got a lovely voice hasn't he very easy to listen to and, and a great storyteller but I really liked the messages that he was that he was saying yeah and he spoke about the serenity prayer and the similarities between that and control the controllables and for those that haven't heard the serenity prayer it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And I can't help thinking when I was listening to him and on the back of Ryan Penniston as well, I think there's some some similarities in terms of their outlook and being able to live your life with this serenity prayer, with this control, the controllables mantra. I believe it allows you to 
continually progress. And we, we spoke about that with Ryan as well, almost this continuum that it's not just putting something on a pedestal and and then when you fail, you fall off the cliff, which I think tennis players tend to have. And, and if we take a story of being a good player, taking a couple of years away from the game, starting to play again, going to a Division One college but not working out, so then going to a Division Three college. Nobody from Division Three makes it as a pro, but he wasn't catastrophizing the, the whole way that he was thinking. He just kept getting better, kept you know working on the things that he can work on day in, day out. And that ended up taking him to a Grand Slam final then it doesn't end, it continues. You know, you keep trying to get better every day and he's then taking that into the next part of his life, whether that's as a father, you know, passing on those those amazing messages or, or what he's now doing, you know, in a very uh, responsible role, you know, working at the USTA, working with some of the, or all of the best players in the world at, at these events and, and looking after them, tournament director of a Masters Series 1000. And it just feels you'll continue to, to get better. Now, I I'm sure Eric won't mind me also mentioning this, but after we spoke, he actually did reach out to, to ask me my opinion of, of the conversation and maybe some of the key things that he felt I picked up from from the chat. He said that would really help him reflect. And and again, that was the, the humility that he showed in doing that, but also that whole, right, what can I get a bit better at? You know, just the, the 0.001% on Monday and the same on Tuesday. And, and I think that all links into the to the mantra of control the controllables, the mantra of serenity prayer, and it seems like that's had a big influence in his life. And I think it's a nice it's a nice way to live. So, what were your key takeaways? What did you feed back to him? I it was that the feeling I had of he was along this journey, and it was a continuum. He wasn't at his final destination. You know, it, it didn't. He didn't have the feeling that he had to be somewhere. It was just a case of look. Can I get a little bit better every day? I thought that came through loud and clear, and and that was even listening to how he spoke about the way he speaks to his kids and the way that that kind of messaging is is passed on. You know, get become a better athlete. Don't don't worry so much about trying to be the best player in the world at age 10, you know, see where it takes, you know, in, in, try and create and facilitate this environment that that you're going to grow your love for the sport. So I think that was that was one big message. I thought his humility was was really strong. You know, I felt that came through and even the fact that he reached out to me, you know, why does he need to you know, reach out to me to get to get my opinion, and I think that that said said a lot about him. Um, and then my last thing that I fed back to him was was how how warm he came across, and and I think it's a real skill to be able to connect with people, and and I think he clearly had that skill. You know, he was able to to connect. I mean, we, we go back a little bit, but we don't know each other so well. Um, but as, as the player liaison officer manager for some of the, 
that, like I said, the big, big names in the world. I mean, you're managing Serena, you're managing Rafa, you're managing, you know, someone who's 60 in the world, all of their coaches. I mean, we see running an academy, how hard it is managing, you know, people in an individual sport who are, who are very selfish. I think you have to have those real skills and and you can you could feel that he will put put everyone at calm you know at ease you know and his voice is very calming but also just the way that he was and it's no surprise to me that he is in a job where he is connecting people and he's and he's playing that role so those were the three main things that I said to him but um yeah if you are listening now as well Eric you you sound like a good guy you sound like someone I'd like to have a beer with you sound like someone who I'd like you to spend time with my kids and and pass on those those values too as well so um it was a real pleasure to have the conversation I was listening thinking, oh, he'd make a good commentator as well. Or um, a journalist, you'd want to hear him doing those on-court interviews. You'd imagine him really getting the best out of the players or, or just after they finish their match, which uh, yeah, is, is such a skill and, and we, don't, we don't always see. You know, the other thing I was thinking of, what's that app that people tell stories to help them going to sleep because they've got a lovely, calm, deep voice? I was like, he should do that as well. <laughs> It's so deep and calming and just lulled me right off to sleep. There you go, but- Eric. So there's a few ideas. You want some ideas? Well, yeah. I think he's already got a pretty amazing job. You know, we talk about all the routes that tennis can take you. It's not necessarily all about being a professional tennis player. There's so many things you can get out of it. And I was thinking, God, he's got such a cool job. Yeah, I was just sitting courtside watching Serena and her last match. It's just amazing experiences you must be getting along the way as well. Yeah, and this is what it's what tennis gives you, or what it can give you, you know. And, and and again, I can't stress this message enough. People are out there playing under twelve tournaments and and absolutely so worried about the end result of that tournament. This is this is not about short term results, and it's not even about the the result at the end of your career. You know, don't don't put those those ceilings on you. Just just get better. Get better day in, day out. You know, take care of those things in your control each and every day. You do that, you'll continue to grow, you'll continue to develop, and and you'll put yourself in a position like Eric Butarak, like Ryan Penniston, like so many that we've heard before, that you will get so much out of this sport. You know, you really, really will. And being in, being able to have that mindset is 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 where it all starts. Yeah, when he said when his child gets in the car, they don't talk about winning or losing. And you mentioned it. You brought up Valerie Condos Field. I'll share the link to that episode in the show notes because that is another amazing episode for parents and how and, and the key messages that we want to be giving our children. And, and Eric said, you know, it's, it's difficult. You know, sport is competitive and it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally to us. But, you know, he talked about the lovely story about his son showing good sportsmanship and, and having that conversation. So, you know, the result isn't always the focus. It's kind of what you're learning and the skills you're developing and along the way. Um, yeah, like I said, I, for me, as a parent with young children, I thought it was an excellent, excellent episode. And we've got more coming up by the sounds of it as well. Yeah, we do. And, and a couple, actually, the next couple of weeks, another similar one in terms of what can be made of tennis. So one of, I think, one of the best tennis commentators out there, Robbie, Robbie Koenig, 
who just does an incredible job. You know, he he himself, who was a top tennis player, as 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 I said, gone into commentary, but is also a tennis parent as well. He's one of his one of his three children are now playing on the ITF Pro Circuit Tour and is about to start at Baylor University. So that's a one I'm really excited for. And then a little bit of a left field one, uh, Henry Winter, who is a football journalist, for those that don't know. Have a look up on Henry. He's someone who, in, again, in my opinion, one of the absolute best football journalists out there. And, and a chance to, to have a different conversation, but still linking back into tennis. Uh, for the football fans out there, that will also be a great one because I'm sure we will have some football stories. Any Newcastle fans out there, I'll be trying to push a few Newcastle United stories as well. But that one I'm, I'm looking forward to, pushing myself out the comfort zone a little bit. You know, I feel I can have conversations with anyone all day about tennis, but trying to bring some topics through, speaking to someone who's an expert in another sport, that's something that I'm excited for, and many more that are on the way. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables.